you could probably find a number of things like this, but um, they say one of the signs of a of a healthy church, a good church, um, is when you when the service is over, do people hang around and fellowship and talk with one another, or when it's done, do do they kind of scatter and uh, and and disappear, um, and so. When you come in here and you're fellowshipping even before we open the word, that's a, that's a good sign. It's a sign that you're, uh, you're bound together in, in the truth because you're here to begin with. You're not uh, somewhere else fellowshipping, but uh, you have fellowship one with, with another because you walk in the, in the same truth, and we, we praise the Lord for that. We're going to be back in our foundational convictions this morning if you need a, uh, a Grace and Granite book or you haven't signed uh, the email um, so you can get, you can get updates, uh, Tim's in the back, um, just slip your hand up to him at, at some point in uh, now or, or in a few seconds and he'll, uh, he'll bring one of those, one of those to you. Uh, but before we get there, before we get to our foundational convictions, we're still in the study one. We're going to be talking about having a right perspective of self today. Uh, I want you to open to Psalm 10. And what, uh, what an applicable psalm today. My, my study Bible's heading is a prayer for the overthrow of the wicked. What, a, what an appropriate psalm to read this morning when you when so you opened your your news apps to uh, this morning and saw what's happening in the world you, you you've known what has been happening in the world and um lots of things i could could say about that uh spoke to boaz early this morning and um he is touring a group there in the desert Headed up to the Dead Sea today. They were in Jordan yesterday, and in Petra. There's obviously not a lot of that, uh, not a lot of that going on. He's talking about how there's a generation of Israelis that have not known what what uh, what some of the older ones do. So 50 years ago, uh, Yom Kippur War, people knew uh, what what they were facing and. Um, now, 50 years later, there's been an entire generation of people that don't know what it's like and have become naive and lulled to sleep to evil, and it has it has raised its head in a very, very ugly way. Um, but we also read a psalm here where, in one sense, that's nothing new. I don't mean to belittle what's going on in that in, in any way, shape, or form. Evil is is in the world and it will continue until Christ returns. But here is a, a psalm that, that speaks directly to it. And it's actually a plea to the Lord in the beginning. Verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What does he mean by that? Verse 2. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the, the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts in his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in their haughtiness, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God, me no consequences for what I'm doing. His ways prosper. At all times, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them, talking about the Lord now. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. 
He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten, and he has hidden his face. He will never see it. And watch the shift. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the uh, the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Appropriate, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word, how it is applicable in in good times and also in bad times, and how applicable it is even as we read this this morning. Um, Lord, in one sense, we can have things happen all over the world, and we're untouched by them because we are here and in safety, and most of the time these things happen over there somewhere. Um, and maybe that's the way this feels to some here this morning. I, I confess I don't feel that. I, I feel a great connection to what, what's happening there. Christians should. And yet um, I take comfort in, in, in this psalm that you are righteous and that you will, you will prevail. And so, Lord, even as we are here in... Uh, in grace and granted, in, in safety, in fellowship, looking at your word, we do pray even this morning um, for the Israeli soldiers that are in direct harm's way, in particular the believers that are there. Um, we know a number of Christian brothers that are in IDF uniform this morning that are in foxholes and jeeps and tanks with unbelieving Israelis, and I pray that the gospel would would reign forth and that they would, uh, even in time of war, turn to you, maybe being disillusioned by everything that happens, that that lack of clarity here would give them clarity in in, in looking to to you. We also pray for the folks that have been, um, that have been taken, the families that are reeling we pray that you would comfort their hearts, that they would look to you, and we, we pray that, that in the end Jesus would be exalted. We know he's coming, and we pray that he would come soon. In Christ's name, amen. Well, open to study one, the foundational convictions that, uh, that are there. And as I was looking at this, this topic... Preparing for you today, I thought about um, the overarching theme here, which is prepare, drive these foundational convictions deep down in your heart now while you're able to. Uh, So when spiritual tragedy comes or difficulty comes or the winds of life blows, they'll, they'll already be there. If you don't have stability before that happens, before those things come, um then you can get very easily blown off course. Now, in one sense, you do that by sitting under exposition week after week after week, like layers of lacquer. It just gets thicker and thicker, or like rain that falls on your heart. It raises the water table under the, under the ground. Joel James gives a great analogy uh, like that with biblical counseling. There are times whenever you fall in the ditch or when you need help, um, and you go to another brother, a biblical counselor, another discipler, someone who, 
who is, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So somebody in a spiritual condition, you go to that person and he helps you dig a well. If you're a believer, there's water in your heart. He helps you dig a well down to the, down to the water. Somebody else has to help you do that. You can't just do that. You're, you don't have strength to do that on your own whenever tragedy comes or difficulty comes or, or the winds blow in your heart or, or all around you. So a biblical counselor, somebody likes that. Somebody like that is a, is a well digger. They help you hit the water in your heart. They don't put it there. The, the Spirit of God does. The gospel does. But if you, on a regular basis, are sitting under the rain, if you're in the church and you're in grace and granted and you're sitting under the Word of God, the, the water is closer to the ground. So the well digger doesn't have to go 200 feet. He only has to go 20 feet. Everyone needs Somebody to help them dig a well every now and then. And the analogy even goes beyond that. The Lord never asks you to dig a well in the desert that he doesn't allow you to drink out of it whenever you hit water and bring somebody else along and uh, allow them to drink out of that, that same well. That's, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, you get to comfort others by the same comfort by which you were, were comforted. Um, but right now, this morning... I don't know what's going on. Maybe everything is hunky-dory and great. Maybe there's a lot of wind swirling. Regardless, you're in, the, you're in the right place. You're sitting under the rain. And so you want the water table to, to rise. Don't think that sanctification, don't think becoming a godly man, whatever term you want to use, uh, happens in these wild swings or giant lightning bolts where you're sitting under a sermon and God just strikes you and, and then... Boom, after that sermon, you're a changed man. I'm not arguing that the Lord doesn't move in dramatic ways in your lives and, or that there, there can't be moments of repentance where your eyes are open and great change. But sanctification that the Bible talks about happens over a long period of time. It, it's called spiritual maturity. Clay's been teaching us about that on, on Sunday night. Yes, it's a work of God, but it also requires our effort, uh, our, our striving, our applying uh, biblical truth. And so we're talking about these foundational convictions, and we're driving these, um, we used the analogy last time, these six by sixes down into the sand you know, to try to hit bedrock. And again, the same analogy. Think every time something strikes that, that six by six or... You know, or a spike in, in a railroad tie. It doesn't go in you know, uh, like a knife in butter. You hit it and sparks fly, but it does move. It goes in a little bit and you hit it again and you hit it again and you hit it again. That's sanctification. And after a period of time, the spike goes in the railroad tie. The six by six goes in the ground. The, the rain saturates the, 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 the topsoil and it gets down below the surface and it and it comes up, um, and yet you have to sit under the rain. You have to strike the railroad tie. You, you, know, you have to put a pile driver to the, to the six by six. So that's what we're talking about doing, driving home some foundational convictions to help build men in a stronger commitment to the, to the bride of, of Christ. What is God doing in the world? God is building his church. Jesus Christ is building his church. Everything that God is doing as far as sanctification and otherwise is happening in the church. Even evangelism and missions that goes on outside of the church begins in the church. It's all connected to the church. And so uh, don't get the idea it's you and God out there changing the world. You are part of what God's doing by, by being in here. So we talked about... You begin by having a working biblical literacy. Um, a lot of times, whenever we, we read the Bible, uh, we, we read it like water rushing through a pipe. Um, sometimes we don't read it at all. I'm assuming you're reading it. Uh, what this is talking about, having a working biblical literacy, is not just to take it in and let it fly right on by or right on through. Um, this is to lay hold of it to catch it when it's there, to pick it up, look at it, meditate on it, consider it, ask questions. Again, a really good example of how you do that is what Clay's been modeling for us even on Sunday night. 
Sunday night, the examples that, that he gave about identifying the, the, the lie that's there, asking yourself the question, uh, you know, what is wrong with this lie, and then applying the biblical truth to it. That, that's part of, the, part of the process. I also talked about having a, a right perspective of, of leadership. Um, we don't view it like, like the Gentiles do whether that's lording over or viewing leadership as an organization or event planning or mobilizing large groups, um, it has to do with life on life. It looks more like shepherding sheep than what Elon Musk does. Um, I'm not saying that that's illegitimate. I'm talking about spiritual leadership or the right perspective of leadership in the church looks more like shepherding sheep. Uh, it looks more like mending nets, uh, resetting bones. It looks more like uh, discipleship. It looks more like a rabbi and his followers uh, than, than some of the leadership models that, that may be normative in, in the church that you came out of or what, you, what you, you've been seeing. Uh, it used to not be the case, but in the 80s with the church growth movement, um, you know, you, you guys I mean, uh, don't even think about the purpose-driven church or Rick Warren or all those guys that, that were, were there whenever I was you're a number of your, your ages. Uh, a number of you guys remember that because you came through that, that era. They're gone, but their, their, their ill work remains the perspectives that, that have been sown in there, the, the view of church leadership that looks more like a CEO, looks more like a business, looks more like organizing, that, that's stuck. And nobody connects it to church growth or Rick Warren anymore. They just think that's the way church is done. And so this is to correct that. That's not the way that, that church is done. Um, you have shepherds and elders, qualified men, that the truth is soaked into their own heart, and then they are saturating others with that. Um, and you have to apply the word to life's hardest questions. Take the truth and practically, practically work it out. Um, can't remember which message it was in Romans. Where I gave the uh, testimony of Joni Erickson Tata um, about the young pastor that sat across her kitchen table uh, right after she had had, as a teenager, um, the diving accident. She, dived, she dove in the pool, and it paralyzed her. She's a quadriplegic. And now the pastor, this young pastor in his 20s, has to go with open Bible and sit across the table with this girl who has questions about where was God, why did this happen, and how am I supposed to think about my scenario and circumstance. What Andy Stanley will tell you is worthless in general, but I can tell you it's worthless in that moment. Um, you need to be able to have life's hardest questions worked out in the pages of Scripture before you get in a situation like that. Now, I pray you'll never be in that kind of situation, but I can also promise you you'll have hard questions in your own heart and in your own life. Um, what do I do with a wayward child? What do I do when a circumstance devastates me? How do I overcome this besetting sin? Um, where is God in those moments? And how do I apply the scripture to it? Uh, if you don't learn how to do that now and get some foundational convictions, then you won't be able to do that successfully whenever those, those winds blow. And we talked about last time how true change happens at the heart level on a superficial level. Um, so don't rush to make outward applications. Think hard about, about Scripture. Um, be able to trace it back to some bedrock convictions. Uh, a high view of God, a high view of the Word. The Word of God is sufficient. God is sovereign. Um, the church is central to life. Uh, if you don't know what some of those foundational convictions are, uh, go back to the church website and look at what we go over every single time we have a, we have a new members class. Um, 
the sufficiency of Scripture, the lordship of Christ, the power of the gospel, the centrality of the church. You know, if you don't know what I mean by those, those terms, those four uh, underpinnings of Timberlake, which are underpinnings of any biblical church or should be, go back and work out some of those angles. Um, uh, long before you get to a question about what do I do in this specific circumstance or in her application, because if you don't have that foundation that's laid there, then you're not going to know how to apply that or know if you're even applying you know, those kinds of things right. And that led us to number four, which we, we ended with last time, know how to help others develop convictions. Well, the obvious point there is if you don't have convictions, you're not going to know how to help others develop convictions, and that's what God wants you to do. He doesn't want you simply dependent upon other people. He wants you helping other people to develop those same, those same convictions. And convictions are beliefs which drive your life and for which you would die if circumstances demanded. How are convictions developed? The longer you confront your inner thoughts with the truth and yield to it, the more the mind of Christ will become the foundation and fruit of your, your convictions. So how do you develop convictions? You confront your inner thoughts with the truth, and then you yield to it over and over and over. You strike your inner thoughts with the hammer of the truth over and over and over, and that nail gets driven deeper and deeper and deeper. And sometimes those convictions are tested, and sometimes you fail, uh, and you're convicted by your failure, and you come back to the Lord, and that's part of the process of, of growth. Biblical convictions will cost you, um, and yet convictions help you to take a stand and have courage in hard seasons to be convinced is to be convicted. So we're now at number five, to have the right perspective of, of oneself. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because here is the launch verse that really is a follow-up that Paul gives after... 1 Corinthians 3. Can anybody tell me what's going on in 1 Corinthians 3? Do you remember 1 Corinthians 3? How does 1 Corinthians 3 start? What's, Paul, what's happening in 1 Corinthians? Yeah. That's right. There's a division happening in the church. And what, what, what's happening because of the division? What are people doing? Who are they, who are they exalting? Men, leaders of the divisions, uh, people that are connected to people. And so Paul rebukes them here, he corrects them. You probably know the passage, uh, verse 4 of chapter 3, very well. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Here's what they are. Servants through whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So even the fact that they're serving and being obedient isn't the end result. They, they don't have uh, abilities. They're just servants. So even they're servants, but even the servants are impotent unless the Lord ignites the work. Servants to whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Paul's watered, but God was causing the, the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is, is anything. Who's somebody? God. But God causes the, the growth. What's his analogy here? What's he talking about? What's he comparing himself and Apollos to besides servants? He says they're servants of God. What analogy does he use? Gardening. Gardening. Exactly right. Do you, do you view a gardener, somebody who's 
planting bushes and maybe watering flowers? Do you view that, that person as, as, you know, when you go to the guidance counselor in 11th grade and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a gardener. Is that what you think? I mean, even think of the analogy that, that he's using here. He's, he's, he's using it for other reasons, but surely to, to give us the right perspective. And yet, can a gardener who plants and waters, have you ever planted something and watered it faithfully, and, um, and the, the weather changes, too much rain, not enough sun, I mean, you, you can do what you can do, but you're not ultimately in control uh, of that plant. I can remember years ago, um, before uh, Jeff was even at the school, we, we planted a soccer field over there with Bermuda grass. And it cost about $100,000 to put this Bermuda grass down. We had people round the clock over there. We bought giant watering things, and I mean, literally, round the clock. You have to water this stuff like crazy. And even though everything was done the way it was supposed to be done, the grass didn't take. I'm always reminded of that when I think about this analogy. Now, why the Lord didn't allow the grass to grow, I have no idea. But the servants did what they were supposed to do, and that still didn't cause the, the grass to grow. Look at what he says here, though, after he gets to the end of this in four, in four one. Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner. How does Paul want to be viewed? Having the right perspective of oneself. Can't do anything apart from God. That's what you take away from chapter 3. And how does Paul want to be viewed? How should we be viewed? Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. A, a steward is somebody who's been given something in trust, uh, something that they're responsible for, but not theirs. Uh, using MacArthur's analogy about you sharing truth, you're the waiter. uses this analogy for preachers. You're not even the, the chef or the cook. Um, you are the one who gets it from the chef to the table. That, that's your job. Get it there without it falling off the plate and get it there hot, was what John said. Don't fall to the delusion that, I mean, the Lord is the one. It's his truth. He's the one preparing the meal. Your job is just to, just to take it to people. You say, well, that makes kind of sound like what I'm doing unimportant. If you think that, then you don't have a proper view of yourself or a proper view of, of God because all we are is servants of Christ and stewards of the, of the mysteries of, of God, servants through whom you believed, servants that the Lord chooses to use, which is a tremendous privilege. Um, let me recommend a book to you if you haven't read it. Uh, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Puritan. Um, it will help you think rightly about yourself, even though it's about Christian contentment. And he'll point out in that book that humility is one of the queens, is the queen of graces, um, humility. You know the verse, God gives grace to the humble, right? And you know the other part of that, that God resists the proud. Is there anything that you need more than the grace of God? Is there anything more valuable on the planet than the grace of God? I would say no. I need more grace. I need future grace. <laughs> I need to operate in grace. I need God's grace. I need God's favor toward me regardless of who I am or what I am. I, and I need that today. You have a verse that says humility attracts God's grace. God gives grace to, to the humble. He pours out more grace on humble people. And he resists the proud. That verse alone 
ought to change the way that you look at yourself and cause you to pursue humility. Jeremiah Burroughs, in, in his book, will, will help you in, in significant ways besides others. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by, by Jeremiah Ver, uh, Burroughs. Know that, number two here, B, let a man regard himself. Having the right perspective of yourself begins with regarding yourself as a, a servant and a steward. And as part of that, you also need to know that God can, for His greater glory, minimize or maximize our usefulness at any time. So any usefulness that you have, when God is, is giving the increase, when things are growing, that's God's choice. Your job is to be faithful. Be the faithful waterer and the faithful gardener and the faithful servant. The Lord is the one who gives the increase. So when the increase comes from your discipleship, from your labor, don't take any thought that that has to do with you. I'm not taking away from your faithfulness. But there are many, many faithful people where God doesn't give the growth or the, in, the increase. There are countless pastors that are somewhere this morning at 6 a.m. with three men gathered together and a Bible open of a church of 100 people or 50 people. And those brothers are no better or less than you and I here this morning. And if he's being faithful, then the reward that he'll receive in heaven has nothing to do with there's three versus 75 or how many ever the number are here this morning. The Lord is the one that gives the increase. How do you keep a right perspective of yourself? You remind yourself that the Lord is the one who brings the, the increase. And on the flip side of that, the Lord can also minimize our usefulness at any time. The Lord can also decrease the numbers that are there. Now, in those situations, you always look at yourself. I mean, that's the first place that you look. Am I being a faithful steward? Am I doing what God's called me to do? Is there sin in my life? Is there something that that I need to deal with? But once you clear that deck, then it's the Lord who grants the, the increase or the decrease for His purposes. And you may never know what those purposes are. You have no idea. And the example that he uses here is Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 4. Does anybody remember what's going on in Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 4? Daniel chapter 3 is is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And chapter 4 is when Nebuchadnezzar uh, is is eating grass like like an ox. So in one, one minute, you have God choosing to exalt four Hebrews that are in, the, in, in miraculous ways, significant ways, which turns to God's praise. Nebuchadnezzar himself says, everyone needs to worship the God of, you know, of, of, of Daniel and, and these men. And then at the end of that, that same king is running around like a nutcase eating, eating grass. And the Lord is the one who does both of those, those things. It's ultimately the Lord. Know that God can, for His greater glory, minimize or maximize our usefulness at any time. Now, why is that truth helpful to us to have the right perspective? Talk to me. Why is that awareness, that biblical truth, that God is the one who gives the increase, why is that helpful? Pride. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And God resists the proud. That's one for sure. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's absolutely. So what do you do when when you are being faithful and there are three there? (laughs) Oh, wow. You know? I mean, one of the tests of, of a preacher's heart is do you prepare differently 
do you give, you know, well, uh, so we have biblical geography. Uh, every, I teach biblical geography for TES every Wednesday or Israel trip and, and those type of things. Last semester, there's, I don't know, there's 20-some people in there. In this semester, the way that it fell, there's still a large group of people going, but there are three students, I think, that are, in the, that are they're sitting in the class. Um, and, and am I going to prepare for those same three students, uh, th- those three students, the same way that I did for, you know, for the others? Um, now, I'm not arguing that, that there are not distinctions by which, you know, if you're, if you're going to go preach at Grace Church or you're going to preach at, at Grace and Granite, you may put on different clothes and you may, you know, handle that a little bit differently. I'm talking about the way your heart is viewing what is going on. And it will guard you from, from the depressions, like you said. Uh, what's, what's going on? Must I be doing something? What else? Yeah, blessed be his name. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. Protects us in evaluating others, which is really what's going on in Corinth, right? You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. Yeah, Mark? And you're not implying by that in any way that, that you, you, you don't do your part, you don't do your work, you're, you're not faithful. Yeah. Yeah. God's the one that gives the, gives the increase. I mean, I preach a sermon every Sunday, and there are how many ever people that are, that are there. There are, during that exact same sermon, there are some people flat dead asleep, and there are other people that are hanging on every word. And sometimes that, that group switches the following Sunday. <laughs> um, what's happening? So am I supposed to evaluate what God is doing by, by that response? You see the danger? You, you may have come out of church like that. Like I did, you evaluated whether God did something by the number of decisions. Well, how do I know what God did in those decisions? Was the altar full of people? I'm not belittling people responding to the Lord in any way, but that's not a judge of whether God did something or whether God didn't do something. In the same way, it's not a judge when you feel like that your sermon was extremely clear and wonderful uh, or the, the next time when you felt like it was a dud and it, 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 just, it just felt. Maybe it was. Maybe you weren't on your game, but that doesn't restrict God from doing what God does through the truth, if the truth was, you know, was, was there. And so you always keep those two things in, in balance. You do what God's called you to do. You be faithful, and then you trust the Lord to do what the Lord is not only promised to do, but, you know, but plans to do. And you can't control him, which is what John 3 said. It's like the wind. Wind blows wherever, wherever it wishes. Um, know that God can for his greater glory minimize or maximize our usefulness at, at any time. We could see. We should never take ourselves too seriously. We are merely slaves who believe and stewards of what belongs to God. Uh, Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, because we're going to turn back there. But turn back to Luke 17.
Luke 17, look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him, when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. So will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did things that were commanded, does he? So you too, here's the point, so you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have, ought to have done. What is that? What's Jesus saying there? What, what's he talking about? Yeah. Okay. Have humility. Understand we're supposed to, to lead with, with service. Clearly that's part of it. Yeah, that last part's important. It's about the character of the Lord. The Lord does reward us for service, but that's a big difference, knowing that versus I deserve it. What else? Why do we seek credit for what we're supposed to do? Do you see the fall operating in what Mark just said? I want credit for what I'm supposed to do. And even in your heart going... I mean, is Jesus being a little harsh here? He's kind of saying, ah, you know, come in from the field, serve me. And you're thinking, wait a minute, what, what about me? I mean, he's kind of being harsh in this slave. I mean, would it be wrong if the, if the master treated the slave well? And those thoughts that I've had, that you may have had, all reveal how deeply the fall has warped everything. Because the creator and the creation relationship that we talked about on, you know, on, on Sunday, um, it's affected us. Obviously, if this passage is under having the right perspective of yourself, then that, that leads a little bit to the indication here. What do we deserve? What, do, what, what, what does all humanity deserve? Hell. Exactly right. And so... A lot of bad theology about God and about man starts with what does man deserve? I mean, how, how can, how, I mean, start with one that's easy. How, why do bad things happen to good people? Bad theology, right? Why, why is that bad theology? There's no good people. And you're living in a bad world. Where'd the bad world come from, God or us? We, we, we live outside of the garden because we put ourselves outside of the, of the garden. Or why, people take that a, a one step further, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? So now it's not just you've exalted yourself, now you've implicated God. And, and really, our warped perspective of humanity, we're reigning over God. We're evaluating God. Um, it, it's unfair if God sends people to hell unless they do really bad things or unless they've heard the gospel or unless they all have a chance. See, all of that theology is connected to us evaluating God because we think we deserve something better than hell. So if you solve the depravity issue, you solve what the Bible actually says about you and about us, a lot of the questions about God can be put in the right perspective because what we deserve is hell from the, you know, from the very beginning. We should never take ourselves too seriously. Now, now put that in leadership or put that in, uh, in 
your relationship to your wife or to your kids or to otherwise. We should never take ourselves too seriously. I can't believe she challenged me. I mean, it's me. I'm the husband. I can't believe he challenged me. I'm the dad. And is there an aspect of authority in both of those cases? Of course there is. But that's also balanced with having a right perspective of, of, of yourself. You're a slave of the Lord. You're just mediating what God has told you to do. The only authority that you have, God gave you. You're a slave of His, and you're just carrying out His commands. So you're the conduit between the Lord and your wife, the conduit between the Lord and your, your child. But, but, but we think we're the Lord, and that's where some of the problems... Or the pastor. Who's this church member think they are? You know, they're sheep. And guess what? So are you. <laughs> You're just a conduit. We should never take ourselves too seriously. We are merely slaves who believe and stewards of what belongs to, to God. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 4 and look at how Paul applies this in verse 1. Do you have service, servants through whom you have believed? So Paul rebukes them over their divisions and the viewing. Look at what he says to them. Verse four, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, let me go one step further, Paul says. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful, they be found trustworthy. So he's not taking away of any faithfulness or labor on your part. If you're a steward or you are a servant, you should be a good one. Lay your life down for, for, for the Lord and let Him worry about what He does with it. Look at verse 3. But, to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court or any human evaluator. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. I mean, what, 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 what's Paul saying there? I mean, is he saying... Judge not, lest you be judged. Don't, don't call anybody out. Don't apply any discernment to anybody's life. Is that what Paul's saying there? That's what the world says. So you can probably guess that's not what Paul's saying there, if that's what the world says. In fact, the Bible calls us to make discerning judgments. The Bible commands us to judge, not in the sense of sitting as the final judge in the seat of condemnation, but judging means discerning, means evaluating and drawing conclusions. I mean, that's what you have to do in church discipline. That's what you have to do in relating to one another. I mean, if you're the spiritual one that's going to restore a bone, don't you have to evaluate how the bone was broken and what the pieces are in or where the hole in the net is? Of course you do. You're called to evaluate your own heart and the heart of others. But you better be doing that in the spirit of meekness, the spirit of gentleness, which is what we've been talking about earlier, having the right perspective of yourself, understanding you're just a fellow slave, you're just a servant, the Lord's the one that exalts, the Lord the one that takes down. You don't always know what God's doing. You don't need to know what God's doing. You just need to know what God's commanded you to do, and you be faithful to do that, and then have the right perspective of yourself as a husband, as a pastor, as a leader, as a, as a boss. But what, what is... What's Paul bringing in here? I mean, is he saying to them, but to me it's a very small thing that I'm examined by you, by any human court. I'm the apostle. I don't care what the church thinks of me. I don't care what the deacons think of me. Is that what he's saying? Not what he's saying. He just called himself a servant, a steward, poured out for them. What does he mean when I don't even examine myself? Examine myself. Ah, oh, well, you just can't know, so why even look at my own heart to try to figure out what's going on? Is that, what, is that what Paul's saying there? 
Is he calling for us to just say, well, you just can't know. So let's just kind of go on with life and see what God does. Is that what he's saying? Obviously not. What's his point here? Well, well, his point is in verse 4. I am, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. You better believe Paul's been doing some, we would call it soul searching, spiritual examination, bringing the light of truth to the things that are in his heart, even the dark crevices. You better believe Paul is standing spiritually naked, if you will, before the, the light of truth. And Paul says, I know of nothing. My conscience is clear. My conscience is void of offense between God and man. Can you say that this morning? It's a wonderful thing to say. Go back to something I said to you last time. Sin will make you a coward. Sin will make you a poor leader, obviously, but it will make you a coward. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Let me tell you, one of the greatest gifts that you can have is assurance. Assurance that you're right with God and you're right with others. The best of your ability, be at peace with all men. I know of nothing. I know of nothing that I can correct. There's nothing that I can fix. And I don't mean by that contemplate your spiritual navel and, and you know, get, play Middle Olympics and get all introspective. I mean, I'm saying when I'm judging rightly and I look at my heart, I'm not engaged in any act of sin. Any sin that I have been in, I've repented of. That's been covered by the blood of Christ, and I am now in a useful position. Regardless of how many chips are in the, are in the pot, the pot's in the Lord's hands, and I'm ready to be filled. Um, Paul says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. I don't know of anything active going on. And he says, yet I am not acquitted. I'm not acquitted. Just because I think there's nothing, that doesn't completely exonerate me. Why? Because the Lord's the one who examines me. What's Paul saying there? Can you know yourself perfectly? Can you know your, your, your motives perfectly? Are there things about you that, that you, you discover later? I mean, have you grown spiritually and you look back at the way you handled something and you what a total knucklehead. I mean, how could I be so stupid at that point in time? Well, let me just tell you, if you can do that, that's a good thing. You're evaluating. But remember, when you were in that stupid condition, you didn't know it. <laughs> so have a right perspective of yourself. And having a right perspective of yourself meaning you may be ignorant about something right now. You don't know of anything, and that's what you should be. You shouldn't be active in sin. You shouldn't be trampling on people or otherwise knowing that you're doing something wrong. I don't know of anything, the best of my ability. But Paul is also holding that loosely. Maybe use the analogy that we talked about, Romans 7. When you try to, Romans 7 is like a, like a, a bar of wet soap. When you, you just when you think you figure out what Paul means there by law or by whatever else, you, you know, yeah, I got it, and, you know, it's, oh, okay, what about that? That's what Paul's doing here. I know, I've got the bar of soap. I know nothing against myself before the Lord. But God's the one who examines my heart, and I'm saying to the Lord, look at my heart, Lord. You know, you know what's there. Reveal what's there. And when, you're, when you have that perspective, what does that do to leadership? When, when you're thinking that way, you're asking the Lord to examine your motives, even things that you can't see. Does that cause you to do what I say? Does that not breed humility? Does that keep you in the right perspective of, of yourself? Of course it does. Um, any thoughts on that before I cover the last one?
Did Clay, did you hear, everybody hear what Clay was talking about? It's the opposite that's true as well. It keeps you from over-exalting. It also keeps you from, when, when you have unjust criticisms, you know, you say, Lord, you know. I mean, I don't think I intended to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm laid bare before you. And so, keeps you from laying in the ditch. But always remember, falling is bad. But laying in the ditch for a week or two after the fall can be worse than the fall sometimes. Your reaction to your fall can sometimes be a greater sin than the fall itself. Oh, woe is me. Self-pity. That it will protect you there. Look at D. We should realize that God is the ultimate examiner of motives, which is what we, we just covered. Um... And the Lord's promised to do that. The Lord's promised to straighten out the crooked stick of Ecclesiastes. The Lord has promised to right wrongs in the end. The Lord has promised to bring justice when you can't get justice. The Lord has promised to sanctify the people under your leadership and sanctify you in your failed leadership. It's the Lord. He's promised to do that. That will happen if you're a believer. He, he will complete the work that, that he began in you, and that gives you hope to keep, to keep doing what you can do, which is be faithful and see yourself properly as a steward. And uh, and as a servant. Any final thoughts? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you're, you're always going to be, you'll always be this side of heaven in a scenario where you can't see everything. Know that God does see everything. And that he'll, whatever is done in secret will be shouted from the housetops one day. Um, but your ability to evaluate things only goes so far. And you shouldn't evaluate the motives. You should evaluate behaviors. Behaviors are clear. Even going back to what Clay was saying on Sunday night, how do I know if I'm deceived? I'm doing sin. If I'm doing sin, I can know for sure that I am deceived. I can look at a behavior, and I can know for sure that's bad. But I can't always know the motive that's behind it. And that's usually where you'll get off track. Isaac? Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that work that, that, that he is there. I've claimed that many times. Lord, I mean, I've asked the Lord, why in the world did you save me? I mean, if I'm going to do something like this, think stuff like this? I mean, and I, I can't answer that question other than grace. But, he, but I also know that he did. And because he did... He's promised never to forsake me, never to let me go. He's promised to continue the continue the work. And that's the marvel of the gospel. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. It's good. Good. All right. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. Challenge toward humility this morning. And just being, thinking of ourselves properly. Um, we have no rights. What we have the right to, you have 
removed in the cross. We have the right to hell. And you didn't just remove that. You lavished us with your grace. You call us sons, brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, joint heirs with him. Um, What amazing grace. Help us never to um, forget that. And as we do, let's remind ourselves that, that we get then now the privilege to work for you. And that in that work, you, you exalt, you, you humble, you give great increase, you, you give times of leanness. But in everything, you're good. And you have good purposes. Keep our hearts fixed uh, with these truths in, in all those times. Knowing that when we stand before you, there will be a righteous reward, a righteous evaluation, and also a righteous judgment. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.